Welcome to a History of the Space Race podcast, episode 18, Gemini in Trouble. Last time, I talked about the repeated failures of the Ranger program up to late 1962. These failures caused NASA to place the program under a total management review, which narrowed the scope of the program from a broad-based planetary exploration program to a program designed solely to support an Apollo lunar landing mission. Within NASA, such a wholesale review and modification of goals was euphemistically referred to as reprogramming. In late 1962, though, the Ranger program was not the only program in trouble and undergoing reprogramming. So was Gemini. The Gemini program got off to a quick start after its approval by NASA in December 1961. The research and development phase of the Gemini program can basically be broken up into five categories. First, building the spacecraft. Second, building the launch vehicle. Third, building the target vehicle for the rendezvous missions. Fourth, building a paraglider to allow for controlled landing of the spacecraft. And fifth, the selection of astronauts for the Gemini program. First, starting construction on the Gemini spacecraft was a relatively simple matter. The contract was easily awarded to McDonnell Douglas, since they were already building the Mercury capsules, and the design of Gemini had grown out of that. Second was the selection and construction of the launch vehicle. This was also relatively easy at first, since NASA really only had one option the Air Force's Titan II ICBM. There was no other missile readily available that could lift the Gemini spacecraft into orbit on NASA's timeline, since the Gemini program had to be completed before Apollo. Thus, the selection of Titan II as the launch vehicle was actually made back in November 1961, even before NASA officially approved the Gemini program. Third was the construction of the target vehicle for the rendezvous missions. NASA decided that the Gemini spacecraft should practice rendezvous with a maneuverable but unmanned spacecraft known as Agena. This item was not as hurried since the Agena target vehicle would not be needed until the later Gemini missions when rendezvous would actually be attempted. Nevertheless, NASA awarded a contract to Lockheed Martin to begin building the Agena by March 1962. Fourth was the development of the paraglider for the Gemini spacecraft. This aspect of the Gemini program was a bit controversial. Strictly speaking, it was not a necessary aspect of the Gemini program at all. Gemini spacecraft could be recovered by splashing down in the ocean just like Mercury. Moreover, although a paraglider system or some other system for controlled landing had initially been considered as part of the Apollo program, by 1962 
the idea was abandoned. Apollo's spacecraft would splash down in the ocean under parachutes just like the Mercury capsules. So overall, there seemed no point to developing a paraglider system as part of the Gemini program. But James Chamberlain, the guy who founded and led the Gemini program, was a big supporter of the paraglider system. His vision was to make space travel a routine operation. If that were to happen, spacecraft would need to have some means of controlled landing to dispense with the fleets of aircraft and ships that the United States deployed every time to recover a Mercury capsule at the cost of millions of dollars. Chamberlain also extracted an understanding from his superiors that if he could get the paraglider system to work in Gemini, then it may be incorporated into Apollo after all. Thus, Chamberlain selected North American Aviation to begin development of the paraglider. In March 1962, efforts to design a prototype of the paraglider system for Gemini began. Fifth and finally was the selection of additional astronauts. The Apollo spacecraft, which would have a three-man crew, already meant that NASA needed to supplement its cadre of only seven astronauts from the Mercury program. The Gemini program, however, with its two-man spacecraft, accelerated the need for additional astronauts sooner. In April 1962, NASA would begin reviewing applications to select a second group of nine astronauts. These men, and they were all men, would be known as the New Nine. By September 1962, their selection was announced. This group includes probably the best-known astronauts. Among them were Neil Armstrong, Frank Borman, Pete Conrad, Jim Lovell, James McDivitt, Tom Stafford, Edward White, John Young, and Elliot C. By May 1962, however, just six months after the program got started, Gemini ran into serious problems. Money problems. As I mentioned in episode 13, when I first introduced the Gemini program, Gemini was unlike the Mercury or Apollo programs. NASA had pitched Mercury and Apollo to the President and Congress to get funding before starting them. NASA started the Gemini program, however, under its own authority. The President and Congress had told NASA to land men on the moon under the Apollo program. NASA determined that rendezvous was going to be a necessary technique to achieve that lunar landing. Gemini would enable NASA to perform rendezvous. Thus, NASA started the Gemini program as a necessity to execute the Apollo program. The initiation of Gemini under NASA's own authority meant, however, that Gemini had no place anywhere in the agency's fiscal budget from Congress. To get Gemini started, NASA simply shifted funds within the existing budget that Congress had approved. When the next fiscal year came around, NASA would add Gemini to the new budget request submitted to Congress. 
Although NASA would need to defend the new program in the budget request, the necessity of Gemini appeared obvious, and NASA felt confident that Congress would provide the necessary funds. Although this reshuffling of funds worked to get the Gemini program started, it became a serious problem in May 1962. To understand why, I need to provide some background on NASA's budget approval process. At this time, NASA's fiscal year ran from July 1st of one year to June 30th of the following year. The fiscal year is named for the year in which the budget ends. For example, the budget covering July 1st, 1962 to June 30th, 1963 is fiscal year 1963. Get it? So when NASA started the Gemini program on its own in December 1961, the agency was shifting money within its fiscal year 1962 budget. NASA then put the cost of the Gemini program into its new budget request for fiscal year 1963 for Congress to approve. But Congress did not pass a new budget before the start of the new fiscal year on July 1st, 1962. Instead, in a move all too familiar to Americans today, Congress passed what is known as a continuing resolution. The effect of the continuing resolution was to keep funding NASA's projects at the same level as the last fiscal year fiscal year 1962, on a month-to-month -month basis until Congress finally passed a budget for fiscal year 1963. Here is where Gemini ran into its first big problem. Gemini was not on NASA's fiscal year 1962 budget, so funding Gemini at the same level as fiscal year 1962 meant zero funding. Once again, NASA found itself having to reshuffle funds within the agency if it was to keep the program going. But this reshuffling would only work assuming that the cost of Gemini did not increase from the original budget calculated in December 1961. And here is where Gemini ran into its second big problem. By May 1962, as NASA was trying to finalize its budget for fiscal year 1963, it became clear that the cost of Gemini was spiraling out of control. The biggest cost increase came from the Gemini spacecraft itself. When NASA first approved Gemini in December 1961, Chamberlain estimated that the spacecraft construction would cost about $240 million. By May 1962, just six months later, the spacecraft was estimated to cost $392 million, $152 million more than initially anticipated. The cost of the Titan II launch vehicle was rising as well. Initially, when NASA negotiated with the U.S. Air Force to use the Titan II back in November 1961, NASA agreed to ask for the fewest changes possible to modify the Titan II from a missile to a man-rated launch vehicle. 
By early 1962, however, it was clear that quite a few modifications were needed to man-rate the Titan II. Between December 1961 and March 1962, the cost of the Titan II for Gemini had risen from $113 million to almost $164 million, an increase of about 50%. The overall cost of the Gemini program was rising from an initial total estimated cost in December 1961 of $529.5 million to over $744 million in May 1962, an increase in cost of about 40% in just six months. NASA continued operating on a month-to-month -month budget based on its fiscal year 1962 appropriations for almost three months until near the end of September 1962. During this time, NASA had begun delaying payments and its contractors for the Gemini program began bombarding the agency for requests to pay in full. Inevitably, the fiscal problems also slowed work. On September 25, 1962, Congress finally approved NASA's budget at $3.7 billion only a little less than what NASA had asked for. But this did not really help the Gemini program, because the cost of Gemini had continued to skyrocket, even beyond the projections from just four months earlier in May 1962. Once again, the biggest rise in cost came from the Gemini spacecraft itself. In May 1962, McDonnell Douglas had already raised the estimated cost of the spacecraft from $240 million to $392 million. In August 1962, McDonnell Douglas revised the estimate up by over another $100 million to almost $499 million. During the same four months, the cost of the Titan II launch vehicle also rose by about $10 million, from $164 million to $173 million. Another source of rising costs was the Agena target vehicle. Between March 1962, when the Agena contract was first issued, and September 1962, when NASA's 1963 budget was passed, the cost of the Agena rose by $12.3 million. The cost increase was actually far worse than the numbers suggested. In an effort to keep costs down, the number of Agena vehicles for Gemini had already been cut from 11 to 8, and yet the cost of the Agena vehicles overall was still rising. Overall, by September 1962, the Gemini program was estimated to cost $925 million, nearly $400 million more than the original budget. Almost half of that increase had come within just the last five months since the May 1962 projections. This rapid increase in costs was alarming to NASA management. 
and the multiple cost revisions with major differences did not instill confidence in the management of the program. To bring the situation under control, NASA headquarters imposed a spending limit. The Manned Spacecraft Center under Robert Gilruth, which oversaw Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, tried to comply. Gilruth requested, however, that NASA also ask Congress for more money. This was firmly rejected by President Kennedy in October 1962. He had just fought a battle with Congress to get the budget approved in September amid increasing complaints about the cost of the space program. Asking for more money again so soon after getting the last budget passed would look very bad. The budget ceiling was going to be tight, affecting all programs, not just Gemini. Though in light of Gemini's spiraling costs, the situation was more problematic for Gemini. Initially, Gilruth attempted to distribute the impact of the cuts required by the budget ceiling by equally cutting funds from both the Apollo program and the Gemini program. Here, however, the president intervened again. All cuts in funding must be absorbed by Gemini. This, of course, only exacerbated an already terrible situation for the Gemini program. There was no choice now. Gemini had to be reprogrammed. This meant deep cuts to the aims of the Gemini missions and the equipment that would be procured. The biggest cuts were to the Agena target vehicle. In fact, there was a question as to whether a target vehicle was needed at all. NASA was already developing a much cheaper way to learn rendezvous techniques using a piggyback rendezvous section that would be launched with the Gemini spacecraft. This piggyback rendezvous section, officially known as the Rendezvous Evaluation Pod, or REP, would actually be part of the adapter section that connected the Gemini spacecraft to the Titan II rocket. The idea was that once they were in orbit, this pod could be released and the Gemini spacecraft could attempt to rendezvous with it. The rendezvous evaluation pod would not, however, be able to maneuver like the Agena spacecraft. When NASA first began developing the pod, the idea was that this could be used to practice rendezvous in the early Gemini missions, before the Agena vehicle was ready. In other words, it was designed to prepare for, not supplant, the Agena rendezvous missions. But now, there was talk about perhaps supplanting the Agena with this pod. Chamberlain, however, resisted this, in part because the added weight of the rendezvous evaluation pod to every mission would mean that there would be no weight for the paraglider on any Gemini mission, and Chamberlain really wanted that paraglider. In the end, the Agena portion of the Gemini program was retained. But the budget was cut from an already reduced $27 million to just $10.3 million. To meet this new limit, a number of Agena spacecraft 
were cut from the Gemini program, and the actual development of the Agena spacecraft was also delayed by as much as 14 months. Further, static test firings of the Agena's engines on the ground were also cut. To maintain confidence that the engines would still work, NASA emphasized qualification tests rather than reliability tests. A qualification test is a test to make sure that a thing actually works. A reliability test is a test to make sure that a thing works consistently. Reliability testing can be expensive, especially in the case of testing rocket engines, as this means that the engines need to be fired over and over and over again. A qualification test, however, only needs to be done once. By expanding qualification tests to subcomponents of equipment, confidence that the equipment will work as intended is increased without having to perform reliability tests. Another area of major cuts was to the launch vehicle, the Titan II rocket. Here, NASA limited the cost of the Titan II rocket to $59 million for fiscal year 1963. This was rather insane, as remember by September 1962, the projected cost of the Titan II procurement for Gemini was $173 million. To meet the budget ceiling, once again, static test firings on the ground were cut to a bare minimum. In the end, there would only be 34 test firings of the engines, about one-fifth of what was originally planned, though this was still considered sufficient to acquire the data needed on the performance and characteristics of the engines. To maintain confidence that the launch vehicle would work as intended, NASA would, as with the Agena vehicle, place more emphasis on qualification testing rather than reliability testing. There were also cuts to the Gemini spacecraft, though this was one place where NASA managed to keep the cuts to a minimum. As with the other cuts, McDonnell Douglas reduced costs mainly by eliminating reliability testing and focusing on qualification tests for more components, including components provided by its subcontractors. McDonnell Douglas also eliminated spare parts and trimmed ancillary support, such as personnel at Cape Canaveral and preparation of reports. All of these efforts cut the cost of the Gemini spacecraft by about $26 million. One casualty of the cuts to the Gemini spacecraft was the elimination of any research into the use of Gemini in a lunar landing mission. If you'll recall, Chamberlain had originally suggested that Gemini, combined with lunar orbital rendezvous, could be used to land men on the moon. With the severe cuts to the Gemini program, and the Apollo program being given the prime mission for landing on the moon, this was naturally an area to be cut. The one part of the Gemini program that did not receive any cuts was the paraglider program. In fact, the paraglider program had its budget increased from $4 million to $7.5 million. This was surprising 
seeing as how the paraglider program was not in any way essential to the Gemini program, the primary aim of which was to learn rendezvous. Moreover, the paraglider program in 1962 was already months behind schedule and had been largely unsuccessful. Not only had the contractor, North American Aviation, failed to even perform a test deploying the paraglider in mid-flight yet, they hadn't even qualified the backup parachute system. But this was one area in which Chamberlain was fairly invested, and so it remained for now. By the time all was said and done, NASA managed the reprogramming of the Gemini program with the loss of only four months to the program schedule and minimal impact to the ultimate goals of the program. Initially, the first Gemini spacecraft was to be launched in August 1963 in an unmanned suborbital flight. This mission would now be delayed to December 1963. The first orbital flight, which would be manned, would now be scheduled for March 1964. Manned flights would continue every two months after that until December 1965 for a total of 11 manned flights just as originally planned. The problem with extending engineering programs, however, is that they generally result in increased costs. Although there may be short-term savings by pushing out expenditures, Extending the length of an engineering project means keeping people and equipment around for longer, which, in the end, increases costs. This will be true of Gemini. So for now, the immediate budget crisis for Gemini in 1962 has passed, but we will need to revisit the problem again in a future episode in 1963. One reason that Gemini was able to weather the financial crisis of 1962 was because Congress did eventually approve NASA's budget request in September 1962. The passage of the budget, however, took some cajoling from the president and a nice kick in the rear end from the Soviets. Next time, I'll talk more about the circumstances of the passage of the budget in September 1962 and the tandem flights of Vostok 3 and 4.